0: So, for me, I'd say my personal portfolio is limited about 20% in Class A. The rest is split between Class C and Class B. And the reason why I like Class C and Class B right now is that you look at all this new construction going in, is so expensive, right? Land has gone up, construction costs have gone up. So, a lot of the new builds are now are all super nice Class A properties.
1: What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Sam Silverman, and today we're talking about evaluating syndication investments from a limited partner or passive investor perspective. That's where Sam first got his start as an LP investor in 20 syndications. Now he's more on the active side, but we're getting his take on what he looks at when evaluating a deal, evaluating a sponsor, a market, all those aspects. He has some unique angles on how he looks at these things that are really interesting. I may, be, uh, I may begin to start incorporating those things in my own deal evaluation. You're going to learn a lot today. I know I did. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Really appreciate you tuning in today. If you're an Apple podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do take a moment and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. It's also a real big help. I mean, honestly, I appreciate that. If you enjoy the show and you want to give back, if you're open to that, just take a minute. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. That's all That's all I ask of you if you know the show. All right, there we go. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit the subscribe button, and that way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. We'll be right here with you talking about passive real estate investing. Once again, our guest is Sam Silverman, and we're talking about evaluating investments in syndications as a limited partner, what he looks for in terms of the sponsorship team, the market, and the deal. All great stuff, and you're going to learn a lot. Without any further ado, here we go. Sam, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Taylor. Thanks for having me on. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your experience, could you tell us about your background and then we're going to dive into investing in syndications and due diligence all that great, all that great stuff.
0: Yeah, so full-time I run a sales org for a tech company. My background is in building, you know, early stage uh, software sales teams. So think, you know, SDRs, which their focus is top of the funnel, building pipelines for more senior sellers. Really just their goal is just booking meetings and target accounts. Background on the real estate side, start out a lot of people do in in single family, right? Where got you know, up to an eight an eight house single family portfolio, all new build construction. There's a reason I moved away from that, right? Just from a time and bandwidth perspective, right? Kind of being that sales is still my my primary focus, it's very very time consuming managing single family tenants, especially well even if you do have property management there, it's always still just a massive, you know, time suck, headspace suck. Um, just a lot of time and bandwidth being put into assets that really aren't worth your time, right? So kind of moved from there into investing in the syndications. And I think since then I've invested in close to 20 deals as an LP over the last you know, two years or so in a variety of markets, right? From the Sunbelt, the Mountain States, different asset classes. So really just all in on investing passively. I think when you look at risk-adjusted returns and look at time spend and, you know, the ability to focus elsewhere with your time, it's really not comparable to anything else.
1: Nice. Nice. And then where did that lead you to? What, I guess, what are you up to now, Um, just to, you know, get that in there?
0: So I still invest heavily as an LP. I think few people who aren't in real estate or own their own businesses will understand what it's like being cash broke. You may have money, (laughs) but you may be cash broke, right? So like whenever I have capital to go into a deal, it is gone. So there's kind of now, though, I still invest as an LP, but I've formed some you know strong partnerships with people I've had good experiences investing with, where I will work with them as an equity partner to either co-sponsor deals, build a fund to invest into their deals, whatever it may be. So kind of on both sides of it now as both an LP and either a GP or fund manager, depending on the deal structure itself.
1: Nice. And today I wanted to talk with you about your processes, your systems, your priorities when you're evaluating a deal from a limited partner perspective, what you look for, maybe some red flags, all that big stuff. So let's break into that. And at least first, how do you get started? Or what are your biggest priorities when you're evaluating a deal?
0: Yeah, I think honestly, how I got started was listening to podcasts like this, right? Because if you look at everyone goes in the podcast to present themselves in some way to go talk shop with, with the person who's running it, but more so it's positioning yourself in a way where the listeners understand what you do and reach out to you if something makes sense to potentially partner on, right, or, or to work with you in that capacity. So, listen to a ton of podcasts, like three, four hundred of them, from you know various different podcast shows where operators would go on talk about how they evaluate deals, how they go through the due diligence process, how they work with investors. It's so really from there, you know, people who are good or people who look like they had potential to, you know, align with what I want out of a deal and what I want to have an operator. I'd reach out to them set up a call and ultimately interview them. Like understand what's their investment thesis, how do they operate? And I think a few big things too, when you look at an operator, right? Is like, what do they give up to do what they're doing? Right, I think the, what risk do they have in this deal is really important. And risk can be a few things, right? It can be financial, it can be reputation. To me, reputation is the biggest one, right? Where, you know, this investment may be a nominal investment relative to what they raise in a year or what what they raise the deal. But the negative publicity around it, the negative feedback should be really meaningful and can hurt the business in a big way. I also like seeing folks who gave something up in the sense that they left behind a very, very meaningful career of some kind, whatever it may be, right? Like just because then their standard of what success looks like is very high, right? You have someone who left a job making sub six, six figures to go do this. What they view as success and what I view as success may be entirely different. But right. I want someone who is in a great place before doing this, whether it was in sales, whether it was in operations, whether it was in owning their own company, owning whatever it may be. they I want them to have left something at the table to go do what they're doing today.
1: Interesting. That That is an interesting way of looking at the team first. I mean, that's what everybody kind of says is, hey, you want to look at the syndication team first. But folks rarely go a bit deeper than that, other than saying you know they want to have experience, so on and so forth. But you're saying... You know, I want to know that they, with this uh, particular deal, they have something to lose. And I want to know that prior to getting into this business, they didn't walk away from, I don't want to mention anything particular, but they didn't want to walk, they didn't walk away from something that was say unsuccessful or not lucrative. They walked away from something where they were making good money or they had good prospects or something like that. So that they really know they have a, a similar picture of success of what you do. And that, probably means, you know, big dollar signs or, or large percentage returns. That's an interesting way of looking at it and evaluating the sponsor.
0: Yeah. I like, I think a big thing in any kind of organization you're with is, is what's the standard for success, right? And that can be, you know, if you have rep a and rep B and rep B came from a different company and their standard of success was a four out of 10 and rep A is from a company where standard success is a seven out of 10, right? Rep B in that company may be absolutely crushing it relatively, but it's not good right? So like them crushing maybe a six out of 10, whereas the other company, they wouldn't even hit the standard of, of staying on that team. So I think it's a really important piece of looking at it is It's like, what did that person give up to do what they're doing? What did do they sacrifice to go do that? And like, I think people weigh the experience out of it way too much, right? Like they've done so many deals, like who cares about that? I would rather bet on someone who's up and coming than someone who's been through, you know, on the way out. But like I kind of view it as if you look at baseball, I'm a big baseball person myself. You look at AAA, it's the guys going down. Double A are the guys coming up. I'll be on the double A guys all day long before the before the triple A guys, just because there's more to prove in that sense, right? As long as they are still being conservative with how they underwrite deals, but right? I think people can get a little bit loose with underwriting to make them work. Mm-hmm. And you who's looked at a spreadsheet, you can make the numbers say whatever you want, right? It's but true. it's understanding how to interpret that to you know truly vet a deal. I think I think that's a big piece of what we can go into next is like when looking at the underwriting behind a deal, there's a few key things you always want to see, right? One is how conservative are they underwriting, right? One from economic vacancy, right? For every dollar they can collect of rent, how much they're actually collecting. You want to see at least a few point gap in, you know, years two, three, four, five after, you know, a meaningful gap between what the area itself produces versus the actual asset, right? So say you're in the Phoenix metro and that metro might be a 95%, you know, this past few years, 95% economic vacancy area. You want to see something in the low nineties, at least, right? Giving yourself some level of conservatism also, looking at you know year one or year two in deals, you're going to have lost lease. You're going to have be, you're going to be turning units, right? You're, you're going to have a lot of these areas in which you're not really truly capturing all the dollars you can capture, and that can throw off cash flow in year one in a big way. So making sure you understand that is really important. I think second, you want to see cap rate decompression, right? Basically, assuming we're buying at a peak, selling in a recession, right? So you want to see some level of conservatority around how much they're decompressing the cap rate each year. Especially if they're going for a full value add project, because the cap rate buying it should be lower than the cap rate selling it, just because there's less than the bone for someone else to come in there and operate that deal themselves. So making sure you're decompressing the cap rate in that sense. I think third, you also want to see is how conservative are they around their budgeting for capex. Mm, I think in real estate, you know, you'll very, very often if, if you buy if you buy somewhat right and you have a you know you're budgeted well you're never a forced seller and you can become a forced seller by you know not having enough dollars to finish renovations in a project. If you never become a forced seller, it's very, very, very tough to lose money in a transaction. Things may take longer, things may not go perfectly to plan, but if you budget appropriately and buy well, it is very tough to lose money in a
1: transaction. So that in particular, the, the CapEx number, especially for a passive investor who may not be an expert in determining you know, is this a reasonable dollar figure per unit or whatever they're planning on doing? If they're saying we're going to gut all these units and it's going to cost us a 500 bucks a door. Well, okay. Maybe that's a little bit of ridiculous of an example, but I mean, how do you, maybe it's difficult to know exactly what the right number is, but how do you at least kind of get a reasonable idea if this sponsor has a, you know, knows what they're talking about, about this stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. So you'll, I think this is a good area when look at past performance, as to help me understand. Have you guys ever done a capital call? Help me understand. You know how you got to these numbers, right? Show me because you always have the breakdown per unit, right? Assuming all units are the same, you may have you know some units are partially finished and units are fully finished. Break those into category by square feet, bedrooms, bathrooms, and help me understand the, the the breakdown of each thing you're doing to it, right? What are you modeling for an appliance package? What kind of floors are going in, right? What kind of new hardware fixtures? Do the ACs need to be done? Does the, does the you know plumbing and piping needs to be redone? Right, kind of understanding that side of it. In most deals that we'll do, which are you know typically medium to light value add, right? So you're putting in between I do know five to ten thousand dollars interior per door, and then one to four exterior um, for larger complexes, right? We're doing the pools, we're doing the common areas, putting in a gym. Right, those kind of things: parking, paving, gating around the property itself, or security, LED lighting, etc. You know, I'd say in between five and ten interior, one and four exterior per door is reasonable. And then also having, you know, making sure there's a line item for working capital or contingency, right? For like lack of better terms, the O oh shit" fund, right? You <laughs> want to see that? You know, granted, it may dilute the investment a little bit, right? You can probably get away without doing it, but I'd rather have see my deal go down by 0.2% IRR and making sure that I'm not getting called by Mr. Operator saying, "Hey, thanks for your 50 grand." wire check for $15,000 again, or your shares being diluted, right? Or Kind of pay the two cents insurance up front versus paying the dollar behind
1: it. That's true. That's a good point. Now, a lot of those factors or a lot of those aspects that you touched on, um, the age of the property, the age of the buildings is a really big factor in that. If a property is new construction, it's not going to need the same level of Sure. fix up as a you know 1960s build is going to need does that like factor into your numbers or is there an age of a building where you're saying that's just way too old you know we got to start fresh what are your thoughts about that
0: I think a lot of it depends on the building itself because I think that's something important to think about too is like what's the end in mind? Right and the end in mind meaning who's your end buyer for this property when you go to sell it in three to five years or whatever your business plan you know, provides. Or if you're buying an asset that's 1960s that's a you know a lower lower grade asset you have to think about, okay, who's buying this asset and how much of a premium will they pay for it, right? So understanding the end in mind is really important for it. But yeah, I think this is sliding scale down, right? Understanding the big items like the roof, the ACs, piping, plumbing, you know, any kind of major exterior community features. And when looking at apartments is really important, understanding how much we budgeted, where if it's a building, they, they all have brand new ACs, even if it's a little bit older, they all have brand new piping, they all have brand new roofs, Right. Likely okay to have a little bit less in terms of contingency, but if it's an asset that has scraped by without new ACS for a while, right? You're going to want to have, you know, three grand a door mapped out so you can get them wholesale, right? So you want to have these. Rather have them and not need them versus need them and not have them, because you can always do distributions back to investors after a period of time once you've hit a certain threshold in reserves internally, where you can investors back that capital. I think people right now, these deals are getting tighter and harder to find. They're having to look for errors in their underwriting in which they can pull capital out of the deal to raise less, therefore boosting projected returns next to the investor. Um, where if you're looking at a deal and it's you know a 15 versus 16 in terms of IRR, right? Like that doesn't make a huge difference. That doesn't matter to me when I look at the deal itself. I more so want to see kind of the order that I care about is one, who's a jockey, right? Who's running the deal themselves? Mm-hmm. Two, what's the area, right? The 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 overall metro and then the submarket. And three, the deal itself matters next. I think the deal to me is third after
1: those first two things. So I'm glad you you mentioned the market. That's one area that we have not really uh, dug into here. You know, you can't move the property. It is where it is. And the local economy is going to drive a lot of what you can and can't do, what your return is going to be. What do you look for as far as, you know, the market goes, uh, population growth, jobs, anything like that? What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, so you want to see a few things, right? One, you want to see, Population and job growth, right? When that happens, rent growth should naturally occur, right? Because more people are going there, there's more jobs. Also, job wage growth, right? How much are people actually getting paid in that area? So, looking at the demographic to make sure it's it supports, you know, a sub one third of the the monthly income going towards rent. Where I like being in properties in which most people in the area can afford them, versus having to be tailored to a select few people who may be able to afford those properties. I think that's a big portion of it. You want to see job diversity, right? Think back to Detroit in the car manufacturing era. When that all went overseas, that entire area because it was so dense of factories and manufacturers that that entire area was hit in a big way and couldn't recover for years and years and years. I think now you really want to see you know sub twenty percent for each major job, you know a major industry that that they have in that area, right? So job diversity, where if one industry is negatively impacted, other industries are there in terms of workers to then support that apartment complex.
1: Yeah, we've seen a lot in you know in my state uh, in rural Virginia years and years ago. There was a lot of textile and furniture manufacturing, which is all gone now, and that ain't coming back. And many of those cities have been very heavily affected by that over time. And uh, that can apply to really any area that has too much of a concentration of one particular industry or one employer. One thing we haven't touched on as well is the, quote, you know, property class, A class, B class, C class are the primary ones you're going to see. Sometimes you hear folks talk about D class properties, and that's kind of descending in terms of you know price, quality, uh, amenities, all those kinds of things. W- for the listeners out there, what are your thoughts about you know the type of the class of property you invest in? Is there any like hard no or you know um, target that you have? So for
0: me, I'd say my personal portfolio is so I about twenty percent class A. The rest is split between class C and class B. And the reason why I like class C and class B right now is that you look at all this new construction going in is so expensive, right? Land has gone up, construction costs have gone up. So a lot of the new bills are now are all super nice class A properties, which means that there's still a delta between class B and class C and class A properties in terms of price points. So for us, we can find properties that are class C and class B in a higher grade area, meaning that the property is say a C plus and the area is a B, right? We can go push that property to maybe a B minus be still competitive on price point versus the other properties of the same class in that area is our starting point is lower and we're forcing value through renovations where we can still become at a lower price point and, and keep the property fully occupied fairly easily. So you want to see a delta between the property class and the area class because that's likely how much you can go push the rents and push the property. Or if you're buying a class you know B property in a class C plus area, you likely can't do much more because the market won't support actually paying larger rents. It's like just burning cash into renovations without a reason to do so. So I think that you see a lot of this new construction right now in the class A space where class C and class B still has plenty of demand for affordable-ish housing, right? So when you look at, say there's a recession, all those people who are now in those class A apartments being viable tenants for class C and class B properties. So personally, the bulk of my portfolio, I'd say 20% class C, 20% class A, the rest in class B because I think class B is the most overall resistant in terms of the demographic that will, that will be in those properties. But also in case something does happen with, with the economy, the class A that moves down to that class B when looking at overall properties.
1: Nice. Well, we're kind of running out of time here. We could talk about this forever. We've covered a lot of very important aspects so far. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Sam, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Do you consider mastermind groups in, in, in the education phase? I'll say no for these purposes. I think they're, they're a little different, but you know, please tell us about it.
0: Yeah. So actually the first group I joined back in March Really helped me understand the different components of a deal, right? So, like for for myself, I always plan on going active from the LP side, you know, once I left corporate America, right? Likely a few years out from now, where it really highlighted the clear delineation of roles within a deal and how much of a need the capital side of it was when working with investors, right? When you look at it, there's a big gap in some operators, how they work with investors, right? I think that's such an important part of it. Is how do you communicate? How do you help source capital? So for me, Kind of being in that group opened my eyes that this is actually like a very very clear need in the market and something that with the limited bandwidth I have today can still you know help complete that side of it and more so just help investors get a better first take of investing than I had right because I think a big thing you look at is what level of trust and transparency do you have with that person's operating the deal I think having someone who fits a similar profile to you as an investor and being your liaison to help guide you through it is so underappreciated and undervalued and I think that's kind of where, where you fall on that side of it as well is you know, really helping connect investors to the right opportunities for, for the they're looking for and understanding where they're coming from. So the, I think the the group itself, you know, forced me to go active a lot quicker and more so Just realized like a, a, a small niche in a bigger area.
1: Nice. Nice. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made?
0: So it actually didn't turn out that bad, but... When I first got out of college, you know, started in sales. Okay, you have some commission checks, right? Sales, you start earning more. The more you perform, the better you get at it. And I got super aggressive and started buying a ton of properties on 15-year loans that were like barely breaking even. And I had, I think, eight houses on 15-year loans that I thankfully almost are all gone now. certain sold them off. But it was just a, you know, my am like, hey, I'll buy 15, 20 properties, I'll pay them off in 15 years, I'll be 36 years old then, and I'll be done. And no cash flow along the way. It would just entirely different approach to what I'm doing today, where it's a cash flow and growth focus versus just a future focus. I think cash flow solves all problems when you look at a deal. Whereas, you know, if you have a property that's losing $50 a month, you only have so many of those properties. True. Even if your property is making $10 a month, you can have as many properties like that as you want, right? It's not going to hurt you. (laughs) So it's just kind of giving yourself some kind of a buffer for stuff to go wrong. And also understanding, you know, if that's so cheap like it is now, you know, take longer terms, lock in longer term debt on them. 15-year loan is a mortgage is a complete scam. So my advice, never do 15-year loans, whatever the banks want to tell you that it, it's all BS. So like, avoid 15-year loans at all costs, especially if you're in the earlier portions of your career.
1: Nice. And if the 30-year loan means you're putting money in your pocket every month, so much the better. Like you said, you can have as many of those as you want because you're making money off of them every month. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Bet on people. More
0: than anything else, like the if you work with good people, your life becomes very, very easy, and they open up doors for you that you didn't think you had the opportunity of going to. If you work with people who are disingenuine or lazy or trying to pull you down, versus what they're doing, it becomes a a huge just trap for what you're doing. The thing surrounding yourself with with good people and and making sure that you're Betting on people in, in any kind of sense versus anything else, right? Like if you're picking, so to tie back to your listeners, they're looking at deals and they're going for a deal that that's a 17 versus a 15 because the, it papers better. Like reevaluating your entire investment strategy because no deal has ever exactly hit projections, right? Like they're they're projections for a reason. I think making sure they're conservative and have a path to going over is important. But if you're betting on a deal to hit the exact projections, like the dollar, then you need to reevaluate your entire strategy and understand like deeper interview the people that you're giving your capital to investing with, because that matters way more. So like the projections don't matter when shit hits the fan, that piece of paper and that slide does not matter. It's the person who's then handling that situation, that event to make sure that that's in pan out in in a strong way where the other person may not do so. So I think that the people in anything matter more than nearly everything else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I love that. Sam, thank you for joining us today and teaching us about how you evaluate syndication deals when looking at it from an LP perspective. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, they want to learn more about what you're up to these days or any of that great stuff, where can they track you down?
0: Yes, my website is silvermancapital.co.co. I'm super active on LinkedIn. And then my my number is 917-575-3523. Feel free to text me. I'm super responsive on, on any of those channels
1: all right great well thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there thank you for tuning in if you're enjoying the show please leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts. i appreciate that so much that helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the uh, apple podcast ecosystem and i'm always honest with you guys that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because i get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the wall street casino along with us if you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives please share share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe. But that way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Appreciate you tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.